I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Listen and learn how to succeed in what I'm calling the next normal. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad to welcome a true culinary entrepreneur to our Conversations podcast. In 2005, she and her husband founded Mendocino Farms, a family of restaurants known for turning sandwiches, salads, and more into an unexpected culinary adventure. She served as president of Mendocino Farms up until 2019, when she transitioned into a board member role. Prior to founding Mendocino Farms, she honed her business acumen at the marketing firm of Suisa Miller and at dot-com startup Target Marketing Interactive. She has been included in Nation's Restaurant News Annual Power List, which recognizes the top 50 leaders who have changed the restaurant industry. Today, she serves as an advisor at Curbit and Vibrant Ventures and sits on the board of directors of the California Restaurant Association, Teach AAPI, and Sugared and Bronzed, the nation's largest sugaring and airbrush tanning destination. She is a true grassroots entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to welcome Ellen Chen. Ellen, welcome. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. I'm excited to share my story with you today. I'm excited to hear it. I know everybody's really going to enjoy it because it's such a such a unique, interesting story. So um, I do want to start with background because you emigrated from Taipei in 1977 and went on to found one of the most celebrated fast casual restaurant companies in California, which is which is really a big deal. And so in a sense, you're the embodiment uh, or a great example of the classic American dream. And, and I know you got your start as a consultant before moving into marketing roles. So I think it would be great for you to tell us a little bit of, in your own words about that journey and your early professional days. Yeah, no, I think um, it's really interesting because I immigrated here when I was four and a half, five almost. And my dad was an entrepreneur. And so I think because of him, it gave me this inspiration that one day I wanted to do the same. He actually, um, we moved here. And so he would spend a month in Taiwan and then a month here. And then we would go back to Taiwan in the summers to um, be with him. So through those summers, I got to spend a lot of time with him in the office and he'd take us to the factory because he was in manufacturing. And that, again, like I said, was kind of the inspiration and gave me the bug to, you know, to want to have my own company and hopefully be able to make, you know, impact in um, the neighborhoods or, you know, the community that you're in. And so as I was going through college and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, you know, traditional Asian families, you're supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer. I think we've all heard this, right? (laughs) Always, always. And I knew that that was not the trajectory I was on. Um, And so knowing that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, the one thing that was kind of what a lot of people were doing, and my sister actually went to go work for Anderson Consulting and, you know, wanted to follow in her footsteps. So I, you know, decided that that was a great place for me to start because it would give me, um, you know, peek into what different organizations, what different companies and industries look like. And so I went to go work for Accenture after I graduated here in L.A., So my first project that I got put on was at a startup, which was, I think, really good. Um, You know, it just laid the foundation to kind of the start of entrepreneurship. It was at a company called Sprint PCS, which is a household name now, but it's crazy. They had just uh, rolled out their new CDMA uh, technology and their biggest, you know, kind of like team was all of us consultants. So it was amazing. I was there for two and a half years, got to see 
every, I got to work in almost every single department. And my first kind of role was to do all the um, reporting for the CFO. So it was crazy as a 21 year old to have that kind of exposure and experience. And then after that, I went to go work in um, Cleveland and in Houston. And the travel kind of, I mean, it killed me. I, I couldn't do it. And so I decided that I wanted to make a transition and uh, spend more time in LA. And I thought, why not go the opposite, do something creative and um, in a place where I could wear jeans and a t-shirt to work every day. So I went to work for an ad agency. My account was accurate. It was really fun. But then the dot-com boom kind of like emerged. And um, my friend had said, hey, a friend of mine is starting a digital ad agency. Why don't you go talk to them? It's a great blend of your technology background and your you know, ad agency background. You know, who knows? And I went and um, I decided to join. It was really fun. I was number four in the company. Uh, my account was cheaptickets.com. And uh, from there, got recruited to go work for an online gaming company, which eventually got acquired by Electronic Arts. So that was really fantastic to have, you know, worked at a startup and then had that kind of transaction exit that I think everyone was looking for. So it was great. I, you know, I got to go work for Electronic Arts for a brief bit and realized that corporate America just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I decided to take time off afterwards. But it's an it's a really unique I mean, you had so much experience so young that that I think was fantastic. And I think let's just talk. So prior to launching Mendocino Farms, you met Mario Del Perro, who became your husband later. But you invested in his restaurant, which was called Skews Teriyaki, one of the early fast casual Asian concepts. So two questions like first, why why that? And then, you know, the restaurant industry is is a pretty difficult space to enter, let alone succeed in. It's just constantly cycling through. So kind of. Why that? And then and then how did that kind of change your view to say, oh, I want to go into or did it now? I really want to be in this industry. So uh, when I decided to take time off, I thought I was going to go travel and do all these great things. But I just I'm not a person who can just sit still. And so I just met Mario and he told me about this great startup and this great you know, restaurant that he had just he had. And I thought to myself, I'm curious and I want to learn. I love the restaurant industry. Well, I love restaurants. I didn't know if I love the industry itself, but I love food. You know, just so many great memories as a kid. And I said, hey, can I come work for you for free? Oh, wow. Let me just come do this thing. And he said, as a good entrepreneur, free labor. Yes, of course. Come on in. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, Smart. And, yeah. I mean, and I, I came in and I have to say from the first day I worked there, I put on my apron and I got behind the register. It was just such a magical moment. I mean, it's rare to work with the product where you can see immediate gratification and really change someone's day. Um, and just being able to create these memories and these experiences through food. I mean, it was just, I, I loved it from day one. And so we, I kept working there for free, which is crazy. <laughs> it's really crazy. <laughs> And he's super creative and he's kind of the culinary guy. And so I said, hey, look, I'm looking at your business. You don't have a lot of business infrastructure on the back end. How about we partner? I'll write you a check. We can invest and we can scale this and see what happens. And we did. So he said yes. And we um, opened up one more SKUs. And uh, from there, we realized very soon that we were doing okay but, um, you know, from a scalability standpoint, teriyaki back in the early 2000s was not as approachable and common as what we see it now. And so we decided that we should sell it and take that capital 
and probably create something else. And at that time, I was also pregnant. We had just gotten married. I was pregnant. And, you know, we're just trying to figure out, like, what was next. And so now you've transitioned from president of Mendocino Farms to board member. And then now you're doing a lot of interesting work with it as advisors to other companies, like I mentioned, Curbin and Vibrant Ventures. So what's what's that been? How different has it been to go from an operator to investor advisor? You know, it's harder than I thought it would be. And just because when you're an operator and you're there in the day-to-day and you're like literally, you know, so hands-on and everything is moving so quickly, it's stressful, but at the same time, you have control and you can actually make changes, make decisions and make shifts and pivots. Um, when you transition into that advisory role, you are providing experiences, your you know, shared experiences, you're providing support, um, feedback. But what you can't do is you can't be there in the day to day to help them make those changes. And that influence, you know, it's hard to not be able to now go in there and start tweaking and doing, because that's what I'm used to. Um, And so I would have to say that's been the hardest transition, but I will have to say it's been really great. You know, I love working with these founders and not only am I helping, they're actually, I'm learning from them too. So it's been really great. That's fun. So let's talk about Mendocino Farms because I know we call it fast casual, but it's not the typical run-of-the-mill fast casual. We have one opposite our headquarters in downtown LA, which is great. I love going in there and or ordering from there. And every time I'm there, it's not only is it delicious, but it's full of energy and and very, very vibrant. And I know it started as just a single corner restaurant in 2005 and then and then it moved across California, Texas, and beyond. So so talk a little bit about sort of how was that in the early days and what what went into the, you know, you started as a single corner restaurant. What goes into the decision of expanding to a new city or market? And then to think about out of state must have been another big decision point. You know, it's interesting. So we opened up store one in 2005 and we had, we knew that we wanted to scale. We just didn't know of what magnitude. And I'm a really process oriented person, obviously coming from consulting. Um, my husband is a super nerd and geek too. So we really looked at this as a business. And if we were going to take this even to number two, what did we need to have done? And a lot of people would just open because they're like, we see success, let's go for it. We were very methodical. Um, it took us another two to three years to build and um, uh, open up our second location. Because what we really wanted to do is figure out like how, and you'll hear me talk a lot about this, Kelly, is you know this idea of culture and values and really being able to define that and codify it so it is in the foundation. So training was so important to us from operations to, like I said, building culture and just figuring out like what people we needed. So we forward invested a lot into that, even from day one or store one. Um, and so we had already started building that. And so as we went to store two, you know, obviously we kept going, but I'll have to say as we looked at um, scale and where we wanted to, we really started to understand who our demographic was, what the psychographic looked like, you know, who really were our avatars and what makes them tick. So I think lots of due diligence, a lot of research. And then um, from there, once you get into the market, you know, for us, it's a lot of grassroots and relationship building, but, you know, it was really strategic and methodical. So we went from L.A., to Orange County, to San Diego, then up to NorCal, but it spans East Bay to Sacramento, and then finally to Texas. And honestly, California is such a large state in itself, and each one of those pockets all feel and look a little bit different. Um, So I think we just built on that playbook and just kept refining it. And even Texas today, we're still learning and refining that playbook as well. 
Yeah, that's great. So you 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 knew you were going to do it. It was just a matter of getting in there and going, which is interesting. And you bring up culture um, because that is so important. It's important to to me. It's important to City National. I see that. So talk about what it's like. What is the key to developing a good team and culture based on what you saw at uh, at Mendocino Farms as you grew it? How did you do that? How did we do that? I think, it, you know, I, a lot of people talk about culture and it's this great mission statement, this one like, you know, paragraph that you put on the wall or you put in an employee manual and then that's it, right? I think for us, we really had to distill like, what does this really mean to us? What is our purpose? What is our why? And in every kind of key stakeholder there is in this business and in each step, like, how do you take that and operationalize it? Um, it does not sound very sexy at all because cultures is kind of like this like warm, fuzzy thing. But the only way to create it is make sure that it really lives in the DNA of everyone who comes through. And so for us, training is key and hiring the right people. I think, you know, for us, we wanted to make sure we broke it down so people really understand, like, what does it mean? One of our core values is selling happy, you know, and a lot of people are just like, that is crazy. You sell sandwiches and salad and we train that our core product is selling happy. So we have to define what does that mean and how do you sell happy? So it was really methodical in terms of um, the technical skills, it's easy to train, right? But then how do you break that down into a value set? And you think about culture and people and really, you know, people who share the same culture have shared languages, shared rituals, shared values, shared routines. And so we created it. Um, within kind of our four walls um, and with everyone who walked through. And I think with great culture, you're able to hire great people, great leaders. And then from there, you know, you're able to retain them. I think people don't come to work just to collect a paycheck. You know, it's got to be for a higher purpose. And so that's where, again, I think if you are able to really build the foundation of who you are and what you stand for, people want to stay and work for you. I could not agree more with that. And sometimes culture, I like the way you talk about operationalizing it and defining it because you do need to pick the right people, but, but it can sound very squishy, mm-hmm. right? And so how do you actually put it into practice every single day, which is important to talk about it and then to demonstrate it. So, yeah, so we, I, we take it. I mean, the, the first day you come on board, you know, our onboarding is very much about how do you how do you practice this idea of selling happy and what are the things you need to do and that's going to create success for you within the company. Yeah, I love that. And what are so talk about what do you think some of the qualities are to be an effective business owner or restaurant owner and are they the same? You know, I think they're similar, right? I mean, it's it's tough to be an owner or to start something. And so I think grit is really important. It's just a characteristic that we all have to have because there's going to be so many bumps in the road um, and you have to be in it for the long haul. And especially for a restaurant owner, I think the difference is it's not just mentally challenging, it's physically challenging. Um, people don't realize that we're standing for 12 to 15 plus hours a day. You know, I think in the beginning, I was working with my husband 15 to 17 hour days, and then this was seven days a week. And when I was pregnant, I was doing the same thing, you know, and I'm, you're cleaning bath. I mean, you've got to be so hands-on. And I think that's the thing with restaurant owners. You're so hands-on from if someone calls out, you're, you know, the prep person, you're the dishwasher, you're the whatever. And so that grit, you just have to have that passion for what you do, you're doing. You've got to love every aspect of the job. You know, the other one is you've got to love people. 
because it's a people business and you're taking care of not just your guests, you're taking care of your team and not just through the good times. There's a lot of mean people out yeah. there. <laughs> Especially, you know, when you, I mean, everyone is a critic now, so you've got to have like a really tough skin. Yeah. And you have to treat it like a business. A lot of people have this notion that uh, being in the restaurant business, it's really cool and sexy. And it's a place where you can bring your friends to like have drinks and hang out. That's why I think, you know, a lot of the times you hear the statistics, nine nine out of 10 businesses fail. You have to treat it like a business and you have to be a student of the business. And you got to continue to learn, evolve and innovate. Yep. That's, that's for sure. Was there, is there, are there any moments that stand out to you as your proudest moments as you were building Mendocino Farms? There's, there's a couple. Um, I think, you know, I go back to it. The the first one is just um, this idea of creating a company built on the basis of this foundation of the, the values of selling happy, you know, and it's so amazing to be able to walk in the restaurants even today and to feel it being practiced so genuinely and authentically. I still have friends who will call me and be like, I can't believe so-and-so did this. So I just had this really great experience or you guys messed up, but you know, they took care of it. And I just, you know, I, I love that you guys do that. And it's great because Mario and I haven't been part of the business for two and a half years. And I can walk into a restaurant and they have no idea who I am, but they still treat me like I'm the most special person. Um, so I'm really proud of the culture we've built. You know, I think there's uh, the next one is, um, you know, I talked about my dad being an entrepreneur and being able to really impact and make differences in people's lives. And, you know, we've created programs where, you know, uh, we have a managing partner program where our managing partner, where they're basically elevated GMs, uh, they're all making six figures. And at their fifth year mark, um, they actually get basically the average of their five-year bonus. And so it's a really large amount. And then they get a one-month sabbatical. So we're making, I mean, we're making, you know, real big, like we're we're making a real difference in their lives. And I'll get texts. Like I just got a text from um, our managing partner here in Studio City. And she took a picture of herself with the check. And she was like, thank you so much. Like you don't even know what this means, you know, for me. She started out as a hourly uh, team member at LMU. And she's now been with us for seven years. So, you know, just being able to make that difference and kind of, I guess, pay homage to what my dad did is pretty cool. And then I think the third, and, you know, you you kind of mentioned it is kind of living this American dream. I don't really, I never really looked at it that way. It was just hard work, you know, in this country that I have lived in for so long. But when I look at it being an Asian female and being able to, you know, take something and really be able to, I guess, scale it and grow it to where it's at today. You know, I'm proud, but I'm proud that I can take what I've done and be able to share my story and hopefully elevate and um, kind of, you know, pay it forward. Yeah. That, I mean, and you bring that up and I wanted to dive into that a little bit because it is, it is inspirational. So I think what you did is not only extraordinary in terms of the, the story of, of coming to the U S and how that unfolded, but the restaurant industry in particular is very male dominated as are a lot of fields. So what was your experience like as a female leader in a male dominated industry? Well, um, and Kelly, I'm sure you've experienced this too. It was very challenging. I think in the moment, I didn't think much of it because I just put my head down and I was like, this is the role I have to play in order for us to scale and do what we need to do. But now looking back at it and really like ripping it apart, I can't believe the stuff that went on. I think it was a blessing and a curse to have my husband as my business partner. It was amazing because we got to share, you know, this amazing experience. 
it opened up a lot of doors for me because he was a white male and, you know, it's male dominated, but it's this bro culture. You know, I, I tell him every day, I, I, I say to him and I, you know, and it's sad to say this, but I don't know if Mendocino Farms would be where it's at today if it was just me at the helm. You know, when we were fundraising um, a lot of these deals for real estate, like I said, this bro culture, I mean, they only wanted to talk to him, you know, and he was the one included in the meetings. And it was like a game of telephone for me, like, okay, so what happened? You know, what did you guys talk about? What are the deal terms? You know, we'd be in board meetings and I love those men in that room, but they would talk to Mario. Um, I was really young. I was younger, you know, I was in my like late twenties, thirties in the beginning. And it was like, I was that like, cute girl who sat there and it was like, oh, you're the girlfriend or you're the wifey, you know? Um, and I put up with it. I, you know, I just thought that that's the role I play. Um, so it's changed. Don't get me wrong, but I had to put myself in a position to make that change too. And that was kind of a moment for me. Um, you know, it was, I think it was like five years in, I had our second child and it was our daughter, Ella. So it was the moment of, do I want this for my daughter in the future? But also I was like the invisible partner who worked her butt off, but was not recognized. And I don't need the limelight. I don't mean that kind of recognition, but just the recognition of the hard work and the role that I played. And so it came at the time where Sheryl Sandberg had just wrote the book Lean In and I just picked it up and I was reading it. And it was kind of like this aha moment. I, you know, I thought to myself, am I going to lean in or am I going to lean out? And, you know, leaning out was not the option and I knew it, but I had to make you know, I had to outline this plan and I sat down with Mario and I go, look, this is what's been happening. I, I won't stand for this anymore. And this is what needs to change. And this is what we need to do for me and as a company to really make sure that women can actually be viewed as equals and can become true leaders in this company. Um, but yeah, that it took me a while to kind of find my voice to do that. And um, yeah, it's just important for us you know, to continue to do that. There's a great book by um, an author. Her name is Joanne Littman. Um, it's called That's What She Said and What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them. And it's about how do we level the playing field. And, you know, it's got we need to include men in this conversation. Um, and it's a great book. I wish they would give it to everyone who starts work. We do. I'm going to grab them and make sure we do, because I think a lot has changed. But the consistent underestimation of women, right, is is something that, you, you know, it creates a different expectation. You've got to learn to deal with it. And I think in restaurants, it's still it's still not that different. Right. What what other changes do you think need to happen to elevate more females into leadership positions in the restaurant industry? I think in the restaurant industry, because it's not a traditional job, it's not a nine to five Monday through Friday. So I think we need to have accessible, um, you know, childcare and affordable childcare so that people can actually continue to work to kind of go through the trajectory of where they need to go. Paternity and maternity leave. Um, you know, everyone talks about maternity leave, but I truly believe paternity leave is just as important because again, we go talk about leveling the playing field, you know, we want men to realize how hard it is um, and to be a part of child rearing and they want to be a part of it. And I think there's this taboo that if you do, if you take paternity leave, you're not committed to your job. You know, what does that say about women then? We don't have a choice. So I think those are two really important things. And then honestly, at the end of the day, it's, you know, us as leaders making sure that we are supporting and championing, you know, having more women uh, leaders in these roles. Yeah. And listening, right. And spreading the word about great books. And yeah, I like, 
and then stopping, you know, and I, I, I stopping men, you know, or talking to them after and saying, Hey, did you notice, or, you know what, in the future, you know, that maybe we should do it this way. And really, I think that's the one thing, because, you know, I, when I spoke to my husband, he, his like jaw dropped. He's like, I didn't even know. I didn't know. Interesting. He did. He didn't recognize no. it. Right. Because he didn't, he doesn't experience it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good that you pointed it out to him. So awareness. Awareness. That's a good one. And so what, let's just talk about the restaurants. The last couple of years have been incredibly tough for the restaurant trade, obviously with the pandemic and hopefully PPP supported enough of them. But was there anything, you know, as you came through this and you've been a little bit out from the company, but any big takeaway or learning yeah. that you're more surprised well, about? I also have to give you and City National Banks huge props for that because you guys, not just for us, but for a lot of other organizations have um, told, you know, we've talked about how great you guys have been with just shepherding us through the process. Um, some banks were really hard to work with and you guys were incredible. So thank you for that. No, thank you. I'm glad we could do it. But in regards to kind of the biggest takeaways, and I don't think they're like, aha, like, oh my gosh, wow, this is it. You know, I, I go back to it. Like for me, it's creating a company with a strong culture and great team of people because it's weathering through the really tough times. Right. And I will have to say we have incredible leaders um, and a really great foundation for people wanting to continue to kind of persevere through what was happening and just coming out on the other side. And um uh, you know, that that to me is investing in people is by far one of the most important things, no matter what industry you're in, because it takes people to grow and, you know, scale a business. So let's talk about all of what you're doing today. Shift a little bit away from Mendocino Farm. Talk about your work as an investor and advisor. So um, there's so many interesting things I know that you're doing there. So let's talk about how you got into early stage investing. Was that just sort of as an entrepreneur, you you identified with it? How did you start? Definitely. I mean, I think that was one of the reasons why. And I think the pandemic exiting out of the day to day in 2020 was really interesting. In January, I thought I was going to partner with a chef and create another concept. Come February, when we saw what was happening and then March, we looked at each other and we're like, we got to put this on pause. And then the whole world shut down and we just had to stay inside. Right. And so I think what ended up happening is um, I started getting a lot of calls from people going, okay, can you help me? You know, I'm in, you know, can you help me figure out how to, you know, deal with this issue, scale my business. And so the advising, the advisory kind of position led to kind of the investing because I was like, okay, I'm giving advice. I really like some of these founders that also need funding. Why not put my money where my mouth is? Um, and I was, you know, fortunate enough to have an exit where I, you know, that that could be part of what I do. And so it was kind of this natural progression, I think. Um, yeah, and it's just been really rewarding being able to, you know, invest both with mentorship and financial with a lot of these companies. Yeah. And so what's, what's your approach? Is it just to, do you go out and look for things? Is it just who approaches you? Um, I think it's a little bit of both, but it's interesting. And Kelly, I'm sure you have um, had this happen too, is once you start investing, deal flow just starts coming through because there's this real like strong network. And I think for me, a lot of the, um, uh, investments in my portfolio, about 80% um, is female and minority owned businesses. And we know there's a lack of funding in that area. And so, you know, knowing that there's investors who are looking at deals like that, there's a lot that comes through, you know, my desk. So um, that's kind of how it's been done just organically and through word of mouth. I love that. I, I love that you're supporting female entrepreneurs um, who are amazing. I just met a whole bunch of them at an event you threw. So 
um, really, really successful. So what, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an angel investor to share? So I think in the very beginning, I, I invested more with emotion um, and then less with like the discipline of things I was looking for. Cause I just, you know, for me, I, I knew how hard it was just being a female and minority, you know, in, in business, but now, you know, I, I, created more of these rails for myself and just be more disciplined about, you know, what I'm looking for and who, who I invest in. Um, and so I think that was my toughest lesson um, in the beginning. And so let's talk about one of those investments because last July you joined Vibrant Ventures, which focuses on plant-based invest- yeah. investments as an advisor. So talk about what, what they're doing. I know they're disrupting uh, the consumer packaged goods space. Well, you know, just like uh, you had just mentioned, so they only invest in plant-based CPG products. And what I love about that is it's really this, you know, I think uh, plant-based eating is a, the wave of the future. You know, it's going to solve, it solves a lot of our health problems and a lot of our environmental issues. And so that's why I just love what Jared has done. He's very disciplined about the companies that he's looking for. And it's very mission-driven, you know, money is important, but, you know, the mission of making sure that we're leaving this world a better place is kind of like the primary focus of what he's looking at. Um, so I just, you know, I've really enjoyed uh, meeting some really great founders and it's amazing what people are doing in this space. Oh, that's exciting. Cause it's not that yeah. convenient to eat that way. It, you know. No, it's not convenient. It's not convenient. And when you think about it, it's not that delicious at times. And so that's the thing that we really look at. It has to be taste good and be good for you all at the same time. So, so talk about some of the biggest challenges you see to entrepreneurs today, uh, especially we talked a little bit about raising capital, pre-seed. What are some of those mm-hmm. advice lessons? Well, I, you know, I think it's, you know, how do you go about fundraising? But it's interesting because I think there's a lot of money out there. Um, but I think one of the challenges is uh, trying to figure out when the right time is to raise money. Um, how much money are you supposed to raise? And then um, who are you supposed to take money from? You know, so it's really interesting. It revolves around fundraising, but it's the, you know, I'll get a lot of calls. It's like, well, how do I know when I need it? You know, and I was like, well, you need it. What you'll know, you know, based off of, and it really depends on what industry you're in. If you need to like invest in a massive amount of inventory to scale and you don't have the cash to do it, then it could be the right time. So I think, you know, I think that's where I get a lot of questions is when, who, and like, how much. Right. Which is a big decision. Who, right? Somebody who can help you. And would your advice typically be to hold off until you really need it? So not to do it too early. I, you know, I, I do, um, you know, and I think it's interesting. I think there's cheap and I'll call it cheap cash, cheap money out there than actually having to raise and give away part of your company. It takes a little bit more work. There's a lot of like accelerator programs. Now there's a lot of grants that are out there. Um, that you can apply for. It takes work, but I think the interesting part, and I've heard this from a lot of the founders that have gone through it, is you actually learn more about your business and your growth because you actually have to put it down on paper and present. And then it opens up this whole network because you're usually pitching to people who are, you know, uh, VCs or, you know, angel investors. So it's really interesting. It's kind of like the stepping stone and you can cobble together, you know, um, you know, quite a bit of money. I've, I've had um, some founders do that. I think it's interesting loans too. You know, I've told a lot of, um, you know, my founder friends is like, go look for loans out there, especially if you're, you know, female or minority owned business, there are loans out there for you to tap into. And it's better to be in debt than to have to give you 
to give away equity too soon. Um, and, you know, I think if you have, if you can show profitability, you know, profits, I think, create freedom for founders where when you do go raise, you know, you, you get a better valuation. So, you know, I think it all depends on the business and what the needs are, but there are other paths to funding. I think before you have to look at giving away a piece of, you know, your business. Yes. So what's, what's, want to share any of your best, your greatest investments to date? Um, you know, I think they're all too early to tell because you know, <laughs> it's all just been so new, but I'll just say there's ones that I really do love. And I really enjoyed working with the founders. Um, I think you tried Sunscoop. It was the plant-based ice cream that yes. was my event. It's so good. It is for, you know, something that is not milk-based. Uh, Carly Blum, she's the founder. I, I love her and I love working with her. Um, it's a plant-based ice cream. You know, it's made with organic um, coconut cream, superfoods, and no refined sugar. So tastes great and great for you. Barcode is another great product that I love. Uh, the founder, Bar- uh, Mubarak Malik, he was the uh, head uh, trainer for the Knicks and realized like there are no good performance drinks for you. And so he um, created... Uh, barcode, which is a better for you, no sugar adaptogen filled performance drink. And his partner is Kyle Kuzma. And so it's just fun to see what they've done with this brand and how people are really embracing it. Um, so there's a, I love them all. It's like telling me to, you know, choose between my, that's right. You can't pick your favorite style. Those are a couple that I've just really enjoyed um, the founders and working with them. That's great. And, and, and it's good that they're good for you too, because so much out there is hard. So what, what about, um, let's talk about the uh, look ahead, the future, your advice, what insights or learnings would you share with any culinary hopefuls today? Well, you know, I, I think the first thing is just be a student of the business and really, you know, like continue to study what's happening with the competitors, the landscape, um, seek mentorship. I can't begin to tell you how important that is. Um, that network is so important. And especially for restaurant owners, literally be your own toughest critic and listen to your guests. Um, a lot of people are like, I hate Yelp. It's the worst thing ever. but I mean, we read it, Mario and I read it religiously. Um, I know it's it's hurtful, but there are so many nuggets if you really looked at it to really, you know, make your business better and um, just, you know, constantly innovate and don't sit still. I think that's one of the most important things. A lot of people will be like, this is it. I found the recipe and we're done. And I think we're never done. It's this idea of restless perfectionism. I love that. Restless perfectionism. And, and feedback, I believe, is a gift. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love, I encourage feedback. You know, I never want to hear the good. I tell my friends, don't tell me how great we were. Tell me how bad we were. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Or if you're going to tell me how great we were, what made it great? Exactly. So, you know, you know, cause it's always hard to know what to not stop doing Exactly. as well. So I think that's important. And you mentioned mentorship, you know, I, that is, and how important that is for particularly young entrepreneurs and investors. How did you go about building that network? What would be your advice to do that? So I think building that network, it's always hard and uncomfortable. So I think it's, you got to get over that and just put yourself out there. I, you know, I did research and I looked at, you know, who was great and who I wanted to learn from and started to figure out within my own network, how can I get to that person? Um, or just sometimes cold calling or hopefully like going to a event or a convention and making sure that like, I try to like get up, you know, get um, find them. them. I think more importantly is when you do find that mentor, like what do you do with them? 
you know, it could be a one-time thing or it could be a long lasting relationship. And, you know, I've been on the other side, you know, I always love people who actually do their homework and, you know, kind of understand my background, how I could actually help them. Um, the other is uh, having really great questions prepared. You know, I've had people come to me with no notebook, with nothing, and they just sit there. And I'm thinking to myself, like, wait, I, do you want, like, what, what's happening? You want help? Here? What do you yeah. want, right? Um, and also ask, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just what advice you have, being a little bit more specific in what you're asking for, even if people say no. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, and I think the last is like a lot of people will come to me and they'll basically want to tell me what they're looking to do. And they just want me to validate and be like, that's amazing. You're you're awesome. Right. Let's, you know, go go for it versus really being open to feedback, because I, I think that's the one thing I don't know everything. And I'm always open. You know, I think you said it earlier, like be open and ask questions. And it's tough when you're, you know, someone's asking for advice when they're really not asking, they're just wanting validation. Yep. Yep. I mean, you always have to be learning. And if you stop listening, you'll stop growing. Exactly. So in in our crazy, incredibly fast paced world today, so much has changed over the last two years. Are, Are there any important or big macro trends that you see that you don't think enough people are talking about? Yeah, I think there's a lot, but one that really does keep me up at night because I think about our future generations is climate change. You know, I know there's, you know, we had conversations and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and then, you know, it got kind of pushed to the side, but climate change, I think we really need to figure out like how, what are we going to do to make sure that this planet is here for future generations? And it goes back to kind of what Vibrant Funds is doing and how they're thinking about, you know, just their role they play. You know, there's so many things we can do individually and so many things that business can do as well. But I'm, I'm, my kids are freaking out over it and they're only 15 and 17. But that's good because they're they're thinking about it, right? And then it's, it's how do you contribute yeah. to the transition that has to happen? in a productive way. Yeah. Well, I thought that's a, that's a certainly one that I is on a lot of people's minds. So last question, you are, uh, like I said, the American dream, but you also, uh, embody the Asian American entrepreneurial journey and not the doctor and the lawyer, but the <laughs> entrepreneur from, from, uh, from that population. So what's, what's the key takeaway you want to leave behind any advice you want to give other AAPI founders or business leaders or creatives? Yep. Uh, I think I go back to it. Representation matters. Your voice matters, you know, and I think there's this whole model minority myth. And I was told this at a very young age, put your head down, work hard, don't rock the boat, you know, and I'm saying do the exact opposite. Now, use your platform, scream loud, rock the boat, you know, share our stories. Um, I think there's not enough of that. And we're starting to see it, which is really exciting. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is making sure that AAPI history is being taught um, at schools and that curriculum needs to start from K through 12 because there's such a lack of history of who we are as Asians and the impact we've made in this country. You know, a lot of people, it's this model minority myth. It's like, you guys are cool. Don't worry about it. You're successful. You're smart. You've got everything going for yourself. So, you know, you guys are fine. Don't you, you don't need to, you know, like, you know, we don't need to help you. But I think if people really understood from all the way back into the 1860s with you know, um, the Chinese railroad uh, workers and the hardships they've had to face and all these different, you know, things that have happened throughout history. We need to learn about those. We actually, um, I just had a speaker come speak at our kids' school um, 
during AAPI month. And um, she was sharing about the model minority myth, um, about Vincent Chen in the 1980s and just all the social injustices. And the kids were shocked. Like they couldn't believe all this had happened. They're like, we had no idea. And I go, there's so much more that we need to learn about because this is how we're going to solve, you know, and I don't want to say solve because it's going to take a really long time, but this is the start, this conversation, um, bringing awareness of who we are and that we're not just one monolith and we're not one face, right? We're 48 Asian countries in this world and there's 22 million Asians in the U.S. That's a lot of us. And we don't look the same. We aren't, you know, we talk, we have different cultures, we have different languages, um, but at the end of the day, we're Americans. And I, I think that's where I go back to representation really, really matters. Yep. I think that's a good point. And learning, because there's a lot of lessons in there. Sounds like there's a movie or some shows to be made in there. We might know some people we can connect with to make Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is. I, I, think there I is. definitely think there is. That's the pop culture seems to recognize faster than than uh, yeah. history. But, well, Ellen, I want to really thank you. First of all, I'm so glad that you and Mario created and succeeded at, at selling happy at Mendocino Farms. It definitely makes makes me happy. So I, a huge congratulations and thank you so much for uh, for doing this today. I know this will be really helpful for everybody who's listening. Well, I appreciate it. This is amazing. And uh, this was really fun. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you.